Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to this week's Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is my colleague, Joe Healy, and we are here today to talk about the preseason top 25. Uh, we have we have reached that part of the year, that part of the preseason, where we have a top 25 to talk about that's very exciting, and so that is what we are going to do here today. We have no, no guest, no nothing, Joe. We are just here. We are talking preseason top 25. Uh, we are just about a month away from the start of the season, and, and this is uh, this is really when everything starts going in in the the Baseball America uh, you know preseason content farm. We are we are starting with the top twenty five here today, and we are very excited about it. Preseason content farm is is a good way to good way to put it. It kind of feels like that at this time of year, and you know we've been you and I have been making allusions to it um, on the podcast for several weeks now that the work has started in the background and, and readers and those listening here will won't see the fruits of that for quite some time but uh, you finally are seeing at least at the, the very surface level of the fruits of that labor we've been putting in for a month and, and really six weeks if you if you count just starting to like research and gather information and, and stuff like that so um, it is nice to have that kind of stuff out there it is also nice on the podcast frankly as much as I enjoy the interview segments we do, you get to talk to a lot of different people. We've learned a lot about sandwiches this year. Like it is kind of nice um, to talk about the season in like little more real terms, um, you know, because it, with the interview segments, we're all kind of talking very hypothetical and we still are, of course, we, we haven't seen any games yet, but, you know, to really dig into it a little bit and to talk about the, the whole of the country. And I've been tempted these last few weeks as we're trying to put together podcast segments to, to pitch the idea of like, maybe we'll do like a season preview preview where we talk about, you know, because I've just been kind of itching to get into this stuff, but I've, we've been able to hold off and, and save it for this episode, which is, which is good. Cause now we can really just, just get into it and, and get our hands dirty a little bit. I mean, we were able to hold off in some ways because we skipped last week's episode, which like we didn't even, I didn't even ask you about, like we, we have been so deep in uh, the process of putting together the college preview issue, which still is not quite gone to press yet, uh, as you guys listen to this, uh, but we'll be we'll be doing so within the next next couple of days, depending on when when you're getting to the, to this podcast. Um, so there's still time to uh, subscribe to Baseball America. You can do so at baseballamerica.com. But we we were just so busy putting together the issue and and everything involving that that you know the podcast slipped us by last week but um you know it's uh that that issue is going to be worth it it you know we've seen the cover at this point i've seen pretty much all the materials going in it uh it's jam-packed as always um so it, it'll be great to see that you know hold the physical copy in your hand if you're into that or just to check it out online over the next uh, few weeks as uh as as we get all the content 
online as well. And that, that starts with the top 25. I mean, the, the preseason top 25 is, it's kind of the anchor of the magazine in, uh, in a lot of ways. And it's what I know that people are really into. I mean, you, you see, like we'll, we'll see how all every year, no matter what sport we're talking about in college, like why do they even do preseason rankings? Like, what's the point? The point is that it's really exciting and that we like talking about these teams. Uh, you know, if you want to take it with a massive grain of salt, if you want to take the whole Morton salt canister and say, this is how much salt I'm taking this with, that's fine. I don't care. Uh, we're just excited about the season. We're excited about the teams. And, you know, we're ready, like Joe said, to actually talk about something kind of real. And that's what you do when you like put together a ranking and you look at projected lineups and rotations and all the rest of that. And uh, I mean, to me, that that's the exciting part here. I love writing the stories, the, the feature stories that go into the magazine as well. But, you know, the the realest thing uh, about you know, preparing for the season is trying to figure out which, which of these teams are good and which of these teams aren't so good. You know, I passed a Morton salt facility on the, when I was in Chicago for ABCA, like what, what do you call the place where, is it a salt, like refinery, salt factory? Like, I don't, I'm not really yes. sure the exact. On yeah. Twitter, Joe is at Joe Healy BA. I am at Ted Cahill. I don't have a good answer for you, Joe. Yeah, uh, but it was like a, you know, it said Morton Salt on the roof of this building. And it was, it was, it was you know, like it was factory refinery size building in, in Chicago, which makes sense. I think Morton Salt from Morton, Illinois, which is not far from Chicago. Um, that would stand to reason. Or perhaps it was just a roof advertisement. You know, that, I guess that also could be, um, you know, you see stuff like that in, in cities. So how much anyway. salt are you using on like a, an average meal? Not a lot, actually. And it's not because I'm necessarily doing like a thing where I'm trying to watch my sodium, although I should with my, frankly, the, the history of men in my family and, and heart disease. Um, it's probably something I should be watching even at, even at my age in my 30s. But um, it's more, to, more so because unless I'm really cooking something from scratch, scratch, I'm not thinking about adding salt or, or, or a ton of spice. Um, and a lot of times, you know, when, when you read a recipe and it says salt and pepper to taste, I'll be like, well, if there's enough seasoning in here, otherwise, like, I'm not just going to add salt to add salt. But I will say, you know, I think I tend, maybe it's just a me thing, but I think in general, we tend to underestimate how much salt they recipes call for generally. Like I'm always blown away when like every third step in some sort of recipe where you're combining a lot of ingredients is salt and pepper to taste. So you really can, you know, add a lot of sodium in there kind of inadvertently when you're, when you're cooking things. But for me personally, it's just not, it's not something I'm reflexively doing, adding salt to things. There, there are some exceptions a lot of times with takeout food, right? Like you'll bring home like uh, fries from someplace and they're kind of bland. Although I'm just as uh, here's a little hack for everybody out there, especially if you're on the you know Eastern seaboard, it's a little easier to come by. I will often go with old Bay seasoning on my fries instead of salt sometimes give them a little extra kick. So that's a, that's a free little tip for you there. But, um, but general salt, no, I'm not, I'm not typically, um, um, adding a lot there. And I, I do have, by the way, I do have a reaction to what you're saying about the priests of the top 25, but I, I will let you react to my salt takes before I jump. Well, I was, I, I was just going to say like, I'm, I am not salting food once it gets to the table, pretty much like, unless it's like absolutely in dire need of it. I, I am very much like, Mashed I usually cook from scratch and, uh, you know, I'm just going to salt it as I go. Um, as opposed to, to putting it on, on the table, not, uh, you know, I've, I've just, it's never been like something I, I, I got in the habit of doing, which I suppose, like you're saying is a, uh, 
is a good health habit. Uh, but yes, as for the your your preseason rankings takes, go for it. Yeah, I just so I'm with you in that um, we have to separate the two things, right? Like I think we this is one thing where we have to we have to walk and chew gum at the same time. Where um, you know people do say, well, it's just a preseason ranking. What does it matter? And first of all. I am 100% with those people when they say that, because I also think there are people who, and we will, we, we, these people will come out of the woodwork on Twitter once the season starts and maybe even before the season starts to complain that their team is ranked nine instead of six, you know, (laughs) or is, you know, only moved up two spots in a week or, or what have you. Like that doesn't matter. That minutia really does not matter. They are so the people who say that the ranking, especially preseason ranking, doesn't matter are right in that regard, right? I've said this before. The selection committee at the end of the season has never once said on the on the show you watch on ESPN to watch the bracket reveal. They've never once said, well, yeah, we, you know, we had them as a two instead of a three because they're ranked in the baseball America, or you know, pick your publication because they're ranked in the top 25. Like that's just never never once been the case and will and will not. So they, they actively do not care. And last year should have been a great indication of that for everyone, because no matter what poll you looked at uh, the ACC, I guarantee, I guarantee every ACC team was ranked better by whatever, again, whatever publication you want to look at, I guarantee ranked ACC teams better than the selection committee did on the whole, like Florida state was a three seed last year and I think was consensus top 20 on selection Monday. Yeah. So, you know, so I agree with those people on that point, but here's where I say we need to walk and chew gum, right? That does not mean just dismiss the, the, our ranking as dumb and totally pointless. It doesn't have any bearing on anything real, like in terms of results in this sport. Um, it is like a little bit of a marketing thing for the programs and, and coaches like to see a number next to their name. And so I'm even setting that aside. Cause we don't, we can't, we don't have any control over that. And some coaches actually don't want the number by the name in some cases. But what I will say is to your point, Teddy's like, it's also just fun. Like it's content. Like, I, you know, Ralph Russo from the AP uh, makes no bones about the fact that, you know, when people say, well, what, especially in the, the era of the playoff, what's even the point of the, the AP top 25. And he's like, it's a marketing tool for the associated press, <laughs> you know? Um, so that's kind of where I'm at with us too. Like, this is fun. This is to let the average listener who probably loves their team and maybe keeps up with other teams in the area, their rivals, their conference foes. But if you're, you know, a big time Arkansas fan, you might not be aware that, Oh, Hey, UC Irvine's really good this year. Um, you know, that, that's a team to watch a team that could host if they, if they really make a, make a move or Hey, Nebraska was in our regional last year and they really pushed us and they're really good again. They're the favorite of the Big Ten again. So that's a team to watch for in regional. So like that's when I was a fan and I wasn't keeping up with the entirety of college baseball as well as I do now. Like that was kind of what I like the top 25 for is like, oh, I hadn't even thought about this team, but Baseball America is telling me that they're going to be really good this year. And maybe that's true, maybe that's not. But like it does kind of allow you to put your antenna up a little bit to what's going on in parts of the country that you may not be paying that much attention to. Yeah, I, I think that that's kind of generally where I'm at. Like, it, it's just, it's a good exercise. Uh, it's a good idea of what teams are going to be good. Uh, there is going to be a team that we did not rank this year that's going to have a fantastic year. That'll host, probably even. Um, there is a team that we ranked in the top 10 this year that is 
going to have a very disappointing year. Maybe they'll miss the NCAA tournament entirely, though probably not, but they'll not host and they'll be very disappointed about it and their fans will be very angry about it, perhaps even depending on the program. Like it, it that welcome, welcome to the uncertainty of first of all, baseball, and then second of all, college athletics. So, you know, we'll just have to see where it goes. But uh, in the meantime, we had fun doing this. I had fun doing this. I don't necessarily want to speak for Joe, but I'll, I'll do it anyway. Joe had fun doing this. Uh, so hopefully you have some fun reading it. Uh, you can check out the full 25 at baseballamerica.com. The team by team capsules are going up over the course of the entire week. Uh, the first five are up now. If you're listening to this on a Monday, uh, if you're catching us later in the week, well, there might be 10, 15, 20, eh, maybe even 25 by now. Who knows when you're getting your, who knows when you're getting to the baseball American college podcast and you're in your rotation. But anyway, throughout the, the course of this week, uh, you can check out the 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 capsules as as they go up again five at a time we're going to get into uh, some discussion about methodology and how we came to these decisions here in the top 25 here uh, in a second but first check this out we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed if you need to hire you need indeed Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, Joe, I guess it's time to actually talk about these teams, talk about how we put this thing together. Um, so we, again, this year had, I guess this is the second year we've had a top 25, like a never too early top 25 that got published in July. Texas was number one then. I feel like we updated that after the draft. Like I'm not, am I incorrect on that? Um at some point, I feel like we updated it. And Texas was number one on that. And uh, Texas is number one 
again today. Other things changed, uh, but Texas enters the season as the number one team in the country. There's a strong SEC flavor to this uh, top 25, as there always is in college baseball, um, with Vanderbilt checking in at number two and the reigning national champs, Mississippi State, at number three. Um, so, Joe, the, the, the top uh, doesn't you – know, th- those are three of the, the last teams standing in Omaha last year, shaken up into a little bit of a different order. But no surprise, Texas, Vanderbilt, Mississippi State looking – uh, quite strong again this season. Yes, exactly. Yeah, not a, not a lot different than what we ended last season with, just in a slightly different order there. Um, you know, the top three teams were three of the last four teams standing. I don't know if you mentioned that specifically, but but yeah, three of the last four teams standing when it was all said and done. Not just they were all in Omaha, but uh, but yeah. So you know, you for those who who kind of wondered if you know, and look, I don't and I don't want to take any one year as as a necessarily any more than just a one-year sample and extrapolate that out any more than it should. But, you know, for those who have wondered if some of the consolidation we've seen in other sports, particularly around the SEC, is slowing, I think you've kind of gotten your your answer on that, especially when you consider that Texas will soon be an SEC program. Um, that's just kind of the reality of the situation. It has also seems increasingly, especially in the case of, you know, Mississippi State, which is now going free, of course, taking 2020 out of the equation. It's fourth consecutive Omaha trip in 2022. Um, you know, Vanderbilt has been a number of, a number of times, uh, they, you know, they won it all in 2019. Um, you know, they're obviously back Texas a little more up and down, but you know, they, they went in 21 and in 18. Um, so I think you are seeing that in much the same way that in football, the way we talk about Alabama, for example, where we say, you know, this was actually supposed to be a, a down year by Alabama standards. And I guess because they lost a game, you could say that they ended up losing two, of course, but a regular season game. Um, you could say that, but that's what constitutes it. That's what makes a down year for Alabama. Um, it, it, it seems a little bit, of course, the, the baseball schedule being what it is, like these teams will all, even the best teams will lose 10, 12, 15 games. Um, but Breaking. We, exactly, yes. I, um, I don't know if you know this, but baseball teams will probably lose um, at least a couple of games during the season. But, um, but yes, yeah, so, so I think what we are kind of, seeing here a little bit is, is maybe that similar phenomenon in baseball where what, what makes a, a down year is maybe like a little bit different. And we're seeing a little more of a reload versus a rebuild uh, because all you have to do is look at Mississippi state's history to see that, you know, they would mix in the occasional year where they were well under 500 in sec play. And like, that's just not happening anymore. And maybe this is just, we will look back on this as the greatest run in the history of Mississippi state baseball. And at least for right now, it probably is because of the national title, but um I'm more inclined to believe that whether it involves these three teams or not, this is just kind of, I think, what we're going to continue to see. I mean, that's an interesting thought. Uh, obviously, Texas kind of defies that, considering that they had the last place finish and the Big 12 mixed in there. Texas defies uh, that in a number of sports. Uh, they it's inconsistency. Yes. <laughs> and I mean, that is just kind of what Texas is. It's that athletic department, it seems. It's defying what should be and what we assume. Uh, yes. But this year... Um, they return that like this is, I mean, we've talked about Texas in the off season all plenty already and what they return and, and what they don't. But if you're just tuning in as, as you get ready for the 22 season, I mean, this is a Texas team that has what looks like the best pitching staff in the country, uh, the best overall rotation. It might not be the best one, two punch. You might like, you can find a better one elsewhere probably. Um, 
you know, starting in Tallahassee, I would guess, uh, where, you know, you've got a couple All-Americans at the front of the rotation. Um, but, you know, in, in Texas, you got the best one, two, three in the country for me uh, in Tanner Witt, Pete Hansen, and Tristan Stevens. You got a lot of experience throughout both the pitching staff and the lineup. Uh, you got guys that turned down pro ball to come back. Tristan Stevens uh, and Pete Hansen both could have turned pro after last season, did not. Uh, Ivan Melendez, who led Texas in hitting and you know is their biggest power threat, also could be in pro ball right now. Instead, he's back. Uh, Austin Todd is back for like a 20th season uh, in, in, at Texas between injuries and the the free year from 2020, he really has been around an awful long time uh, in that outfield. Uh, they've got one of the best defenses in the country with Trey Faltini at shortstop, Silas Arduan at catcher, Mitchell Daly at second base. I mean, they have pieces to replace guys like Cam Williams and Zach Zubia from last year's team. Um, and of course, Ty Madden at the front of the rotation, but this is this is a group that just, you know, it's the whole roster. It's not, you know, Tanner Witt is going to be a first-round pick. He's on track to be a first-round pick in 2023. But aside from him, I mean, it's not necessarily a superstar prospecty roster. It's just 1 through 27, 1 through 35, whatever, wherever you want to go. Uh, they are incredibly deep and incredibly talented and very experienced. Yeah, that's kind of the interesting thing is, is one of the, there are a million like little tiny details we have to fill out just to give the listeners that little peek. Like there, there are a million little tiny details we have to fill out for the magazine issue specifically. One of which that I was tasked with these last few days is pulling out the top three 2022 prospects for each team. And that's kind of a fun exercise because it really does kind of give you a feel for, oh, this is a, this is a team that, you know, I don't want to say it's necessarily an extra bit of urgency, but there are definitely teams that are very present in terms of their top talent is draft eligible right now and will likely not be here next year. And there are other teams that are more of a mix. And then Texas is kind of strange because it's not really, it's not an extremely young team, but it's also not super prospecty or, or super duper veteran heavy outside of, you know, you know, you're right about Austin Todd, like, you know, I'm, you know, pretty sure he played with Houston street or something, but um, so they do have some of those guys, but it's just, um, you know, kind of a, a weird little roster in terms of the way it's made up. But the, the result of which is you hit the nail on the head where it's, you know, I, I kind of define it as um, it feels like a very vintage Texas team where it's, it's pitching heavy and, and the best Texas staffs you look historically, they, they've had prospect guys, but they've also had a lot of just really good college pitchers on their best teams and this team feels a little bit like that in that regard. It's also a team that, to your point, is going to field the ball really well. Another key piece of that is Skylar Messenger, the Kansas transfer. I think you can kind of look at, not the same player necessarily, but look at what Benjamin Sims did at Michigan last year in terms of stepping right in and being able to compete there. Texas, obviously, the Big 12 is more of a step up there, but he's been in the Big 12. Kansas, it's not going to be any surprise to him there. Um, so, you know, he adds to being a, a, a good defensive piece on the infield, brings a little power to the, to the lineup. Um, but this is going to be a lineup, again, that outside of Ivan Melendez most likely is going to be a lineup that's based on speed and athleticism, and that's kind of classic Texas too. 
Um, so while there may not be as many headlining names as, as you might expect for a team that feels like a very solid number one team in the country, it's just a really well-made team, well-rounded team that can do a lot of different things pretty well. Um, and I think that's got them set up really well as a number one team to be able to weather storms that inevitably happen uh, throughout the season. This team is not overly dependent on any one specific thing, I don't think. The, the other thing I like about them is how much they went through last season. And we definitely covered this then, but you know, they got off to such a poor start to last season. You know, they, they had to reckon with some stuff. They know what it takes to get to Omaha. They, they, you know, had to, you know, rally late to win the big 12 regular season title last year. Just a lot of things happened for them last year in terms of learning how to win and, and overcoming certain things. And I mean, I think that because they have so many returning players that, I mean, that, that stuff all carries over, I believe. And, you know, so that a, a lot of the lessons that they learned last year are just going to be applicable this season and maybe helps them avoid some of those pitfalls. But, you know, when they inevitably do lose a series because it happens, uh, you know, they'll be ready for it and they'll understand, okay, well, this is, th- this is not the end of the end of anything, you know, unless this is happening in super regionals, we, we still have everything to play for here. And this is how we respond. And this is how we get back out of this and, and keep our goals in front of us. And I, again, I, I think that all plays, I think that they generally are a very well-prepared team by David Pierce. And, and I expect that to, to be the case again this season. Uh, all right, Joe, let's uh, let's move on from the horns. Um, we mentioned Vanderbilt. We mentioned Mississippi State. Both of those teams are replacing some real superstars uh, from last year's finals series. Frankly, I don't see a whole lot of differentiation. We could have gone, you know, I, I, I think of two, three, whatever you want to do there. But, um, you know, we went with Vanderbilt ahead of Mississippi State. I like Vanderbilt's offense. Uh, we've heard a lot of good things about their young pitchers. Patrick Riley was great on the Cape last summer. Carter Holton is a freshman who was great uh, this fall. The Vanderbilt is not lacking for options anywhere on its pitching staff. Uh, and I just like what they have returning. Mississippi State, I mean, I, not to take anything away from their returners, but when you're replacing Christian McLeod, Will Bednar, Tanner Allen, and Rowdy Jordan, I mean, like that's, uh, that's a lot of heart and soul and a lot of production to replace. Uh, I have no doubt that they have the pieces to do it, but a, you know, it is, it is more, um, you know, more than just the production that's getting replaced. They're not that replacing rocker and lighter is easy because it's not, but I mean, there's just so much turnover in Starkville uh, that I, I, I do think that they, they will take a couple beats this season to kind of figure out how things fit both, in the rotation and the the bullpen and everything uh, and in the lineup. Yeah, I think it's, um, they are well set up to, to be able to take some, some punches early in the season and maybe they have some fits and starts as they try to find the right pieces there, but there is still a lot of championship DNA on this Mississippi state roster. Even if you look at the guys who are coming into new roles, I mean, I look at guys like Braylon Skinner or Tanner Leggett, um, you know, Kellum Clark, those are guys who weren't necessarily regulars the entirety of the season. But by the time they got to Omaha, those were guys that were, they were playing a role and they may not have been lined up every night, 
but they were, they did have a role to play, made big plays, uh, were a part of the mix. And whether those guys are regulars again this year or, or new this year remains to be seen because they're, they are going to get pushed. You know, the out, Braylon Skinner can get pushed by Jess Davis, the UAB transfer who has um, great speed in his own right. You know, Tanner Leggett could get pushed by RJ Yeager, the transfer from Mercer, who's done nothing but hit in his four years at Mercer. So there are some interchangeable pieces there maybe, but I say all that to say like, you know, championship DNA, I think matters. And so I think this is a team that, you know, maybe it doesn't look pretty all the time as they try to get it figured out, but I would bet on them by the end of the season, that kind of muscle memory, if you will, taking over a little bit with that group. And you're right that, you know, we could have gone either way with two and three Vanderbilt and Mississippi state. And then we definitely had the discussion. Um, the differentiator for Vanderbilt for me is just that they, they do have that level of, kind of physicality in the lineup. There are some guys in Mississippi State's order that can run the ball out of the ballpark. But when you talk about, you know, the, the, the power of and, uh, proven production of, of Dominic Keegan and then Carter Young and, and Parker Noland had a big fall. Like, I think he's a, a breakout candidate there, um, you know, kind of waiting on Spencer Jones to break out. Um, you know, Davis Diaz, the freshman, really looked the part. So that lineup is really, really solid there. And oh, by the way, of course, you have Enrique Bradfield Jr. at the top of the lineup, who's as disruptive as, as any player in college baseball, once he gets on the, once he gets on the base pads and, you know, on the pitching staff, I think we've mentioned this before, but I felt like maybe we, and I was probably as guilty of this as anybody, we, we got out over our skis a little bit with maybe looking down a little bit at what the Vanderbilt pitching staff looked like behind rocker and lighter. There were a lot of guys who, who pitched really well last year. You know, Riley had his moments, Nick Maldonado and Chris McElvain and, um, you know, those guys all pitched pretty well. And so they are going to take on bigger roles. Sure. Um, expecting either anybody in that group to be a rocker or a lighter is a little bit unrealistic, although I suppose it's in the realm of possibility because these are Vanderbilt pitchers we're talking about. But um, but to say that Vanderbilt is, is coming in there without options or completely restarting, I think would be a little bit a little bit foolhardy because the guys they're bringing in there are more experienced than I think a lot of people give them credit for. And we're also more successful um, than even I, I probably gave them credit for during the season last year. Well, you know, I, I don't... I don't know that I fully agree on that. Uh, I was probably chief, the, the the chief person saying like Vanderbilt's pitching staff after Rocker and Lighter just isn't as good. They have a Sunday problem. They have a Sunday problem. I said they have a Sunday problem so many times last year because they did. Um, but that doesn't, like what they were last year. I mean, if you look at what, you know, Patrick Riley did as a freshman it's solid like there's nothing wrong with what he did as a freshman but it's also not if that was your friday starter like at vanderbilt you would be like not happy um murphy and maldonado were outstanding as co-closers i think we collectively were probably a little late to how good vanderbilt's bullpen wound up being but the the other thing is riley just like it's reasonable to take what he did on the Cape, what, what happened since then and say he got better and he's now ready for this. Um, you know, no matter where they end up pitching him, if he is the opening day starter or not, like he has had an opportunity to go out and get better and pitch in different environments and, and learn from that. And so I expect that he did that. The Chris McElvain who, you know, started uh, the Cape Cod league, uh, championship clincher. I expect that he did that, that Christian Little did that, that, and, you know, you're, you're bringing in a good freshman class with a Carter Holton, um, you know, freshmen generally don't pitch in Vanderbilt's rotation, but Carter Holton may very well do so. You know, he started 
at North Carolina in one of the fall games. And obviously going to the Bosch in October is different than doing it in April, but you know, it, the, there's something to be said for that experience for sure. And so I, I do like what they have on the mound. Um, it's not like, I would say that the better part of Vanderbilt's team right now is the lineup, but I, I, I really like the upside that the pitching presents. Yeah. I'm with you. I mean, that's all fair. I, you know, I think the linchpin to me seems like it, it if what they we've projected is, is what they run out there. Like, I think the linchpin a little bit is, is Christian little because with Carter Holton, like, yes, he's, he was electric. I was, I was there at that, that fall day at UNC and he was, he was electric. Like he looks like he could be really, really good, but you know, freshman, you just, you're not exactly sure what you're going to get. And if, if Patrick Riley really has taken that step forward, maybe you've got a little more of a sure thing there and, and little's maybe somewhere in between the two where, you know, it's easy, it's easy to forget just how highly regarded he was coming in and came out of, Got to and how young early. he was. Yes. Remember, he he graduated a semester early. He was 17. He was one of the youngest players in the country. But yes, to your point, Joe, also he was a projected first rounder or like ranked as a projected first rounder if he had stayed in high school. Yeah. So, I mean, he, he's a guy who's got a lot of talent and he just, you know, he was put in some positions he wasn't ready for like that, you know, 17 years old, like <laughs> understandable. So, um, you know, how ready is he to kind of be the guy in, in between those two? Um, I think it's going to be a, a big, a big thing for Randall. I, I would say, though, that if either Holton or Little isn't quite ready. Like McIlvain was stretched out enough last year. Like I mentioned, he started on the Cape. Uh, he didn't pitch in the fall, but um, you know, he is an option here as well. Taking him out of the bullpen would obviously, you know, weaken something to strengthen the rotation. But if you need it in the rotation, like he can be used there as well. So, I mean, I, they just have a lot of options. Thomas Schultz started several games for them last year and he's back. Um, it, they, they run deeper than you would expect considering how many innings were sucked up rightfully so by rocker and lighter in 2021. Yeah. I won't belabor this anymore because we, uh, if, if this podcast is not going to be four hours, we, we need to get a move on of course. But, uh, you know, one of the things we didn't mention with Mississippi state, except in passing maybe is, you know, Landon Sims is their new Friday guy moving from the closers role. And, uh, you know, I've got a pretty good amount of confidence. He's going to be all right there. Um, but that is something to monitor because those closer to rotation conversions can go a lot of different ways. I have no concerns, but the the thing to monitor for me is the fact that, um, you know, he would come into games last year. He was not a traditional closer. He was coming in uh, for two, three, sometimes even four innings, usually just once on the weekend. And it was like auto win at that point. The game was almost completely over uh, their, their winning record with, in games that Landon Sims pitched is incredible. So now you don't have that. Now he has to do it on Friday nights. And like, that's, that's one thing that they just have to deal with is how does he do it over seven innings as opposed to three innings. And you know, that that's, that's a different conversation, but it's just, okay. Like now you don't have that stopper, that moment of truth guy in your bullpen, whenever you need him at some point during the weekend, because you almost always can use a guy like that at it you know, over the course of a three-game series. So what do they do with those innings? To me, that's the bigger question mark rather than can Land and Sims uh, become a Friday starter because, I mean, he was he was amazing last year and did it over multiple innings. I, I, you're right to, to wonder about that, Joe, but I, my mind goes to what do they do without their, their stopper uh, when they're clinging to a one-run lead on Saturday? Um, in a 
you know, in, in the seventh inning. That 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 is where where I am curious to see what this Mississippi State team looks like. Uh, cause it, it's going to look different without Sims coming in from the bullpen in that spot. All right, to keep it moving, uh, rounding out the top five, a couple of ACC teams, Notre Dame, you might've heard us talk about them a time or two last year and, uh, Virginia, which, uh, made it to the college world series. Uh, Joe, there's an interesting discussion to be had about these teams. Um, we are, if you look at other publications, we're probably the high men on Notre Dame and UVA both. Um, you might just see that as an extension of the way we felt about them in 2021, specifically the way I felt about them. Uh, I was the one that said Notre Dame was going to be good last year, that picked them as the Omaha sleeper. I probably pushed Virginia higher in our rankings in 2021. And so we talked about this before we hit record that you know, you can look at Virginia's run to the College World Series last year as a bit of a Cinderella run. Or if you're me, who really believed in UVA all season long, you can just see it as kind of like a, a you know, that that was what was supposed to happen. The journey was a strange one, but they got to where they were supposed to be at the end of the day. Uh, and so they should still be good despite losing an Andrew Abbott, a Zach Geloff, a Logan Michaels. Uh, but I mean, there are, there, there's definitely another way to see UVA. There's another way to see Notre Dame to see, yes, they won the ACC going away last year. Uh, but you know, they did it in this non-traditional way. They lost a first team All-American in Nico Cavadas. Uh, they're running it back, but, uh, you know, without Nico Cavadas, without bullpen ace Tanner Kolep, who was also drafted, uh, you know, they're going to need some new stars to step up. So I, obviously you see it more towards the way I'm seeing it in the, the, the rose colored glasses with these two teams. But I think there is probably a, a pessimistic view to, to Notre Dame and to UVA as well. Yeah. And I, I would be more, um, I could be talked more into the Virginia skepticism than the Notre Dame skepticism. And I think that's probably an easy way, an easy way out just because we saw Virginia struggle for, eight, 10 weeks last year before they really got going. So that, I think that's kind of a convenient, that would be the convenient way. If you're going to say like, which one would you, would you think would be more likely to struggle in 2022? Um, you know, clearly we're, we're on board here. Um, but it, you know, if you were to make that devil's advocate argument with Virginia, I think it would be a little bit like what you laid out, which is that, well, you know, they could have just gotten hot at the right time last year. Now you're looking at losing you know, Logan Michaels, a, a little bit of a, you know, a heart and soul guy on that team. And, you know, you're, you're, you're losing Zach Geloff and, you know, Chris Newell, who we thought was going to be a superstar and still could be, was just kind of, was actually not good at all for most of last season and, and really rebounded to, to put up numbers that were at least palatable. Um, and, you know, Andrew Abbott, the front of the rotation, really talk about closer to, to starter conversions that went really well. You know, he was one of the best strikeout artists in the ACC last year. Um, after in the country, way. I think, I think it was yeah. third to, yeah. to rocker and lighter. Yeah, I wasn't sure exactly where he landed, so I was kind of tiptoeing around that a little bit. But yeah, in the country, he was, um, you know, one of the best strikeout artists out there. And and by the way, like after some like early, like, you know, I'm not saying it was bad, but like early in the season, like there was there were some moments where it was like, I'm not sure this is going to this is going to take necessarily. But then obviously it worked out really, really well. Um, but I think the if you. If you want to take that a step further and, and look at a different angle here to, to find reasons to poke holes here, you know, with Virginia, I think you look at, you know, last year, one of the, the big 
things, especially in the postseason, was that you had a guy like like Griff McGarry, for example, that kind of um, woke up. I mean, he was talking about a guy who really, really struggled last year and then just kind of like had this, um, you know, that probably would have been kind of an interesting story at the time to, to work through. It was just, you know, what has Griff McGarry been doing differently over the last month to six weeks that has made him the pitcher he is? Because, you know, he went into that super regional against Dallas Baptist and just shoved, um, you know, and, and, and was a different guy. Um, so that was a big deal. But you look at past Abbott and it was, you know, Mike Vassell who had a nice year, um, but was not dominant by any stretch of the imagination. And then they, you know, McGarry finally came back around. But but then you look at the rotation this year and and you have Nate Savino as a, a guy with a lot of pedigree, um, a guy who was really highly regarded. That was kind of a Christian little of his time, I guess you could say, in, in some ways. And, um, you know, he's had some nice moments, um, but he's really not missing bats, um, which is a little bit of a concern if you're looking for a true Friday guy. And then behind him, you're, you're probably going to do some some more bullpen conversions. And I guess given Andrew Abbott's success, you can bet on that a little bit with guys like Brandon Meeker or Matt Wyatt. But um, there are questions. And, and Matt there. Wyatt did pitch in, in very extended outings, some sure. starts down the for stretch sure. too. For so sure. you, you do have an idea of what that looks like. For sure. So anyway, I mean, if, if you wanted to take a little different angle than just looking at it and saying, well, this is the same team that struggled for 10 weeks last year. Like, okay, sure. That's like the, the most convenient, but beyond that, you could say, you know, I, I, do they have another Andrew Abbott ace to pull here? Do they have another rabbit out of the hat? Uh, which is of course not being fair to, there was a lot of work that went into that, but you know what I mean? Like, do they have something like that? They can, they can turn to again in 2022. If not, that obviously hurts them a little bit. And do you get, a more consistent Chris Newell. Do you get, you know, Jake Geloff being as, um, as productive as his brother was last year? You know, what is Kyle Seals on for? So I've got fewer questions about Notre Dame and like, sure, I don't want to, they were pretty Nico Cavada centric. And I guess that could be the argument you'd make there offensively is that he could always kind of bail them out. Um, but, you know, we heard on this podcast with Link Jarrett, where I think if you're reading between the lines, I don't want to put too many words in his mouth, but I think this offense might be a lot more like the offense he would actually like to run because sure. It was great when Nico Cavadas is hitting three run home runs. It's less easy to run the type of offense he wants to run. If Nico Cavadas is standing on first base after he just walked. Um, so I think they're going to move the ball a little bit more, be a little more fast and athletic. And I think that could play into the types of offenses the link Jared actually wants to have. Now, will that result in the offense being better on balance? We don't know but I'm more willing to, to bet on that. So, if you, I mean, if you're going to make me pick one to be more skeptical of, I go Virginia, but I am bought in on the idea that they're going to figure the pitching side out. And some of the guys, Chris Newell chief among them that really just scuffled last year, I'm betting on a bounce back there to where they're a lot more consistent this time around. There's a broader discussion to be had about the entirety of the ACC. Last year was just strange for so many teams in the ACC for a variety of reasons, starting with the fact that they played 12 conference weekends. Um, they were limited in the number, like they, they couldn't play 56 games. They were limited to 50. Uh, so that meant fewer midweek games. And because they had all of these, these conference weekends, uh, you know, and they, they, they started conference play almost immediately uh, to fit in the fact that a lot of these teams need to take buys, uh, you know, for, for their finals weekend. Um there just wasn't a whole lot of runway. And if you fell behind early, like you, we saw it snowball on teams and UVA was one of the teams we saw it snowball on. Uh, and then there were so many COVID cancellations in the league uh, for the longest time, like up until May when 
the Big Ten finally got hit with some COVID stuff. And I think that was frankly teams that were out. Like I, I don't I want to say that like teams that were out of it were just done with playing or whatever. But if you look at who COVID canceled late in the season in the Big Ten, it wasn't the contenders. Um, but anyway, for the longest time, the ACC had more COVID cancellations than any other major con any of the major conferences put together. The ACC lost more conference games, and yes, they were playing more conference games. So like that was bound to like there was some some something wrapped up in that. But you know, you saw NC State, you saw Wake Forest, you saw just so many teams get hit with COVID pauses. And again, so like just a lot of weird things happened in the ACC last year. So Notre Dame winds up playing basically no midweek games uh, because of the, like the way the school was handling things. So now they go back to a more normal schedule. What, what, what do things look like there? You know, last year they employed this unique, basically piggyback pitching strategy. I like, what does that look like? in a more normal schedule. What does UVA look like last year if they'd been able to have a normal runway into ACC play? What does, you know, Florida State look like? What does Louisville look like if they don't, you know, go like a week and a half without don't without playing any games? Uh, you know, you, you can play this game for just so many ACC teams. And so they're very hard to deal with right now. Um, I feel good about Notre Dame and UVA obviously. Uh, but I, I, I think that there's a lot of question marks around the conference for any number of reasons. Like you can look at a team that we didn't rank in the top 25, North Carolina. And I just have questions about them for nor- very normal baseball reasons. Like they lost their ace. They were amazing with Austin Love on the mound last year. They were below 500 without him. What does it look like now that Austin Love is gone? Like they were very young last year. Like who's ready to step up for that? Like, that's just a very normal baseball like question that I have. But with some of these other teams, it's like, okay, Louisville, like what happened at the end of last year? And like, how do you go about fixing that? Uh, or, you know, again, like Notre Dame, like you didn't play midweeks last year. What does it look like now with midweeks? Uh, so it, it's a very interesting conference overall, but um yeah, the with with these two teams specifically, obviously I'm seeing things one way. It's fair, like there is reason. I can see why you might be skeptical, uh, but I'm all in on Notre Dame, and I'm I'm pretty much all in on UVA as well. All right, we're moving on. Uh, that's the top five going into uh, six through ten. We got we got Florida, Stanford, Ole Miss. Arkansas and LSU. Uh, Joe, I want to talk about Stanford here, but first let's acknowledge Arkansas and the news that came out um, last week, as you guys listened to this, um, about Peyton Paulette, Arkansas's projected, who had been projected to be Arkansas's opening day starter. He is injured. He will miss the season because he's going to undergo Tommy John surgery. It was a really, really rough blow for, for Paulette and for the hogs. Um, we had them written in higher, uh, until that news came out, but with the loss of Paulette, they have now lost their top five pitchers from 2021 by innings pitched. So Kevin Copps, Patrick Wicklander, Lyle Lockhart, Peyton Paulette, and Caleb Bolden were 
they, they, those were the guys that accounted for the most innings. If, if you rank the pitching staff by innings, those guys threw the most. The, the five guys that threw the most are now gone. Uh, three of them are in pro ball. Paulette's now injured and Caleb Bolden transferred. That is an awful lot to be trying to replace. Uh, and Arkansas has options. You know, Jackson Wiggins pitched for Team USA this summer, uh, but he was pretty inconsistent as a freshman. They're going to need more. They bring in some really exciting freshmen this year. Uh, you know, you can look at a guy like Connor Noland, who a few years ago as a freshman uh, made 19 starts for a team that went to the College World Series. In the two years since, he hasn't, he hasn't pitched a whole lot. Um, you know, so I, I got a lot of questions about that pitching staff. Uh, we had to make a decision about what to do kind of in the moment after the Paulette injury. I don't know that like, you know, it, it's, it's a snap decision when things like that happen. And, and I don't love it that, that we had to make it that way. I, I would have loved more time to think through it. Uh, but obviously it, it, we are the least of the affected here. So, uh, I'll, I'm very interested to see how they line things up now. Uh, cause it's a completely new look pitching staff in Fayetteville. Yeah, it's you. You, you remember, listener, that uh, it, was a, it was a pitching staff that um, already at the end of last year we were kind of like, well, it's pretty thin there. Like if Kevin Cops and Patrick Wicklander aren't like putting the team on their back, they're just not. You know, they they, they weren't getting outs like they, they wanted to. Was, they, they got real thin there, and so you take everybody out of that mix, and so what are you left with? We're gonna we're gonna really find out um, this section of the rankings more broadly is uh, with the exception of Florida, which has a little more balance, is the, the Bash Brothers section of the rankings when you look at yeah, Stanford, seven through Arkansas, ten is, uh, and LSU. <laughs> yeah, se- seven through ten is, uh, we, got the, we got the bats taken care of. Who's, who's got the arms? Yeah, yeah, I mean, and that, and that really starts, I mean, like, like I said, with Florida, you, you've, got some, you've got some bats, you've got Barco in the rotation, and of course, Florida always has a, a raft of pitchers who are all pro prospects. So like they, they do have some of that, that balance there, but starting with Stanford, you start to get into questions on the pitching staff. And, you know, the thing about Stanford, and I've said it before is that they're banking on us seeing a step forward on the pitching staff in the way that we saw a step forward with their bats last year. So you recall two years ago, 2020, we obviously didn't get to see how it played out, but Stanford was not very good early last year. So we kind of all collectively looked past them going into last season and then, oh, they were an Omaha team. Um, so in order to be an Omaha team again, like I think, you know, they really just need to run it back. But if they're going to, to really compete for national title, because last year they got to Omaha, but it was clear they were short on the mound. So it could be make a real difference if um, if they get a step forward on the mound and, you know, they lose Brennan Beck, which is not ideal. They're pushed that base. They lose Zach Gretsch, who it's easy to overlook him because he's, he's, he's not as, as known as Beck was, but he was a real workhorse in the bullpen. And so now they're, they're turning to, you know, Alex Williams on the front of the rotation, who is a pretty talented guy, but he's also battled some injuries and, and, you know, got a late start last year to the season due to injury. And then of course, 2020 happened. So when you, when you look at it, he just hasn't pitched a ton the last couple of years, uh, Quinn Matthews, whose numbers don't look great, but he was a guy they trusted in Omaha last year, but then you've got, you know, sophomores, Drew Dowd, Joey Dixon, Tommy O'Rourke, who just really, in a lot of cases, weren't necessarily prepared for what they got thrown into last year in, in a lot of cases. Um, and they're banking on them being ready this year. Um, but with an offense that you've got Brock Jones, you know, probably the preseason favorite, especially in a Pac-12 that doesn't include Jacob Berry anymore. 
although Daniel Susak in Arizona probably has something to say about it, but certainly in the mix of preseason favorite to win Pac-12 player of the year back as, as a center fielder and Brock Jones, Drew Bowser at third base, uh, excellent freshman year, should be very, very good again. Tommy Troy's an interesting guy. He's a, a versatile, you know, plus athlete who can play a bunch of different positions, who can hit the ball out of the ballpark, he can steal you bases. Um, solid backstop in Cody Huff at catcher. So the position player group is, is pretty well settled. They're going to hit. I think they're going to defend pretty well. You just you need to see a little bit something more on the mound for them to really take them seriously as a, as a national title contender, as opposed to to what they are on the floor. I think the floor is simply, hey, they're still probably the best team in, in the Pac-12. We, we are predicting them to win the Pac-12. It's a team that's going to push to get to Omaha. But how seriously should we take them as national title contender? is what we're really talking about here. I'm here to fully endorse Brock Jones as Pac-12 player of the year, but also throw out Arizona State's Ethan Vaughn and Cal's Dylan Beavers. Yeah. Could be a pretty exciting uh, player yeah. of the year race up there. It's a good position player group in the conference, for sure. Yeah, I like Stanford. Uh, the thing about them is they just got to find th- guys who can throw strikes. Uh, you know, with that offense, I think it's a pretty good defense. The park they play in, uh, they just got to find strike throwers. Uh, they don't need. They don't need somebody to you know, go up and, and be a one, one candidate, uh, which is good. Cause I don't think they have those guys right now necessarily, but they just need to find some consistency on the mound. And if they can do that, uh, you know, they've, they've had a lot of success with that. Thomas eager, their pitching coach ha- does a good job, like coaching them. And, you know, so they don't, they don't need their pitching to carry them, but they are going to need some guys to, to figure things out. Uh, this sec West mess here with with arkansas old miss and lsu i mean i don't know how it's going to shake out they all look pretty similar to each other frankly uh they're they they all have some serious questions on the mound maybe old miss least of all um because they they lost gunner hogland early last year so they had to they had to live without him already uh but you know losing hogland losing Nikhazy at the front of that rotation is uh you know make makes things difficult for them as as they work through uh to 22 and then lsu is going to look almost completely new uh they have no shortage of options but i have no idea how to expect it to line up when everything's said and done uh you know with the newness of of the the coaching staff obviously and also so many new faces on the pitching staff uh, what I do know is all three of those teams are going to rake. Uh, there are going to be a lot of high-scoring games uh, in in Fayetteville, Oxford, and Baton Rouge, and uh, it should be pretty exciting to watch. Uh, I, I love the idea of LSU having Dylan Cruz and Jacob Berry hitting back-to-back in the lineup. And Trey Morgan's in there somewhere, and so is Kate Doty. And, I mean, they just have so many guys that can rake there. Uh, they just have to have to figure out the pitching staff, but it's uh, uh, that that's an exciting group, and I uh, that, that's maybe the, the one that I'm most excited for, just because I know the least about what it's going to look like. Again, it's a, it's a new coach, Jay Johnson, Jacob Berry's, uh, you know, a transfer from Arizona. Like I've seen a picture of him in an LSU uniform, but we haven't really seen seen much more than that yet. And, uh, you know, they bring in a whole bunch of of other guys in the portal and in the recruiting class. It, everything just feels new there. And uh, so I'm excited to see what it looks like. It's no slight to to Arkansas and Ole Miss. I'm excited to see them as well. But uh, just the newness at LSU is is fresh, and uh, you know, I it's it's hard to predict LSU right now. I feel like they they could go out and be a national title contender, 
or they could, you know, really struggle to, to put things together in the, the way that we expect them to be able to, uh, especially on the mound. A- anything feels on the table there, but uh, I, I think they're going to be pretty good. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's Gavin Dugas has to have probably the quietest 19 home run season in SEC history. Because no he shares a lineup. <laughs> Either that or Will Frizzell. Yeah, that's a, that's a, yeah, that's another good candidate there. But like on a good team, Gavin Dugas hit 19 home runs last year. It's like, you know, he gets, understandably so, gets mentioned like sixth in his lineup. Um, but yeah, just an, an incredible lineup there. You know, I think, and this, and this bears out in the, the way we have them slotted, but I think, you know, I think we like Arkansas's offense best. And it's one of the reasons why I think they're well positioned to weather the storm. It's not like they don't have talented pitchers, right? I mean, like, but I think I like LSU's offense the best. Okay, fair enough. We can we can agree to. I mean, that, those are the two offenses I'd be debating about. You know, those are the two offenses I like the best. I, you know, I personally, because you know, I, I'm kind of betting on like, for all the the you know, the, you could look at what Wake Forest did or didn't do, and what Chris Lanzilli is or isn't as a prospect. Like very productive hitter. You're putting him in the lineup. Michael Turner from Kent State. Um, you know, productive hitter in the MAC. Jace Bowrofen was a blue chip recruit coming last year to Oklahoma. So I'm kind of betting on that kind of kind of working out there but lsu certainly i you know i think i think it is is right there and there's an argument to made for for either one of them um the, the thing um, Ole miss obviously a great lineup too this is not giving them short shrift um a they, they do have a, a couple more positional questions i think um versus some of the others also and mike bianco is, is aware of this when he was in the podcast he talked about maybe wanting to try to be a little more athletic but um, you know, they do have, when you talk about, you know, Tim Elko and, and Kevin Graham, you know, guys who are not, don't have a lot of versatility. Um, they do have some guys, even a healthy Tim Elko with his, with his knee, um, you know, obviously he was not much of a, a runner at the end of last year, but just in general, that's not his game. And so I, I do wonder if Ole Miss's offense will be a little more one-sided than the other two, the other two lineups, I think have a little more athleticism there. I think it gives them, not that either of them, I think are going to be, um, you know, stealing bases by the dozen, but I do think just having a little bit of that element could be helpful there. On the flip side, I do like Ole Miss's pitching, I think, more than either of the other two. Um, I think that's fair, yeah. You know, Derek Diamond, um, and, you know, he and, and, and Drew McDaniel both got kind of yo-yoed in and out of the rotation last year a couple times, but um, Derek Diamond in particular, I think, has had moments where you thought like, okay, you can you can see what is building here. You can see what the the, the – the makeup is here for this guy to be a really good SEC starter at some point. And, you know, Jack Washburn was a, was a team USA guy. Um, you know, he wasn't the best guy on Oregon state staff and, and he got overshadowed with team USA, but he was good enough to be there. His numbers were great last year in a relief role. Um, I think that's a guy who could pitch right away in the SEC. Um, and John Gaddis from Corpus Christi, if he is to Ole Miss, what Lyle Lockhart was to Arkansas last year, um, you know, Lockhart was tough, you know, tougher to, to trust out there when you got to the postseason. But in the regular season, Lyle Lockhart threw a lot of good innings for Arkansas, threw a lot of important innings for Arkansas. So if you start with that as kind of the floor for Ole Miss, I feel pretty good about that. Now, the lineup is still better. I still have questions about the pitching staff, but I feel best about them of the three. Uh, Before we move on past the top ten here, we didn't really touch on Florida much. Um, Gators are what you would expect they would be. I, I feel like they're a team that has a ton of talent, they're a little on the younger side. They don't have many seniors running around there. Uh, I saw Nick De La Torre, our, our friend, uh, who now writes for On3 um, down there in Gainesville, uh, 
talked to Sully and, you know, just talked about how even though, you know, COVID, the rule changes allowed them to carry more players, blah, 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 you know, all, all the roster management stuff that, that happened over the last couple of years. Uh, Sully didn't change his philosophy at all. They just kept on bringing in elite recruiting classes and kept on shipping out pro players. Uh, so, you know, they're, they, it, it's not the most experienced team you'll find in the top 10. It's a team that has to replace a lot of players that were lost to the draft. Tommy Mace, Jack Leftwich, um, among them, Nathan Hickey. Uh, but they have Judd Fabian back after, you know, he did not sign as a second round pick of the Red Sox last year. So he's back to anchor the lineup. And, you know, last year didn't go the way Fabian thought it would, the way we thought it would go for Fabian. He hit 20 home runs, but he also struck out way too much. Um, what's that going to look like this year? I don't know, but they do get an elite center fielder and a guy with plus power back. So uh, that's, that's really good news. Uh, they will be really strong defensively again. Matt Cassetti behind the plate. I really like Josh Rivera plays a good shortstop. Judd Fabian again in center field is, is great. Uh, and, you know, they have Hunter Barco at the front of the rotation and he might be the best pitcher in the SEC. He also, I mean, he might not be Landon Sims and Blade Tidwell definitely have something to say about that, but uh, you know, Barco is, is an all American type. He's got as much starting experience as, uh, you know, really anyone in the country at, 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 a, at a high, high level he is, you know, cause he started as a freshman in 2020. And, and then again, last year, uh, he can lead the rotation. They've got plenty of guys behind him. Brandon Sprout pitched for team USA last year. They've got a bunch of, you know, freshmen and sophomores that are ready to go on the mound just a matter of putting it all together. And, you know, this is a team that maybe takes some lumps early in the season, like some Florida teams do. Um, but I expect they'll have it together in May, April and May and June, and, and we'll see where they go. But I, I the, the talent here uh, is, is definitely elite. I mean, it's, it's, this is more of an ethereal thing as opposed to anything like, you know, specific on the field. But there was, you know, last year there was just, we talked about this before, like from the jump, it just didn't quite feel right with Florida last year. And I, I, I do think there's a, there's a very good chance we just see um, a Florida team with a fire lit under it a little bit more in 2022, just given what the standard is there and also just betting on that, on that talent. But from the jump last year, it just didn't feel quite right. I think it's going to be a little bit different this year. All right. We, uh, we went pretty in depth there on these top 10 teams. Joe, let's, uh, instead of having that three hour podcast today, let's, uh, let's jump around from here. Um, you can see, again, you can see the full top 25 at baseballamerica.com and we'll go plenty in depth, uh, in writing, um, who from outside the top 10 catches, catches your eye here. So I, uh, the delay there listener was because Joe couldn't get his, uh, his, his screen unmuted, uh, fast enough. So <laughs> Joe was, was frantically fidgeting with buttons in the background. Um, everyone can relate. Indeed, indeed, like frantically just like clicking it, like why isn't it? Um, so I, I'm interested in Georgia um, for a number of reasons. One is that I, I even kind of forget that it wasn't that long ago. Like Georgia hosted twice, like 18 and 19, right? Like I don't have that wrong. That, that is correct. And they were yeah. a top eight seed in 19. And like, top okay. Top four seed even. Like they were, That's right. I, yeah. I think there were four exactly. Maybe there were three. But so, I mean, and, and okay, so then we can talk about like, okay, they didn't get out of those regionals, you know, uh, sure. But like, 
it wasn't well, a long they ran into a team of destiny in 19 i wouldn't i wouldn't go too uh too hard on them there you know sure so like that's the Knowles, in case anyone else has right, forgotten. Florida I, State. I, I should just say that, like, yes, that was that was Mike Martin's final season, uh, and, and Florida State uh, went in and beat them, and then went to Baton Rouge and won, and uh, almost made me look like a genius, uh, <laughs> but fell short in Omaha. Anyway, continue, Joe. Yeah, and the year before, they got steamrolled by a Duke team that was on, like, a heater of all heaters. Well, know? and there were, like, a million rain delays. That was a really yeah, that weird, was a weird regional that in 18. Anyway, long story short, I mean – they're not that far removed from being like an elite elite team in the regular season. And last year they were not that. So I get why there's a little bit of maybe some people might look at Georgia and get kind of their ears kind of perk up a little bit, but it's a team that it's a team that returns quite a bit um, from that team last year. Uh, you know, this Georgia typically um, has been a team where we looked at the pitching and gone like, mm, okay, that looks pretty nice. And then looked at the position players and gone like, ugh. Um, and this year, it, I don't think it's the most explosive offense. Clearly, we just talked about three that are going to be probably leaps and bounds better. But it's a, I think it's a really solid position player group. Now, there's some star power there with Corey Collins, a catcher who might see more time at the age. But uh, with him there and then the Tate brothers are just really solid players there. Um, so I think there is some uh, an opportunity for that offense to be a little bit better uh, than what we've seen from Georgia in the past. And then the pitching is kind of the Georgia pitching we would expect in terms of talent, not necessarily in terms of proof being in the pudding there. You know, when you take into consideration Jonathan Cannon and last year missing some time, although when he came back, he was, he was quite good. Um, Liam Sullivan, a Juco transfer and Dylan Ross, like those are all really talented guys, maybe a little bit more unproven, but so if you're telling me that, you know, actually there's a pretty decent amount of certainty in this Georgia position player group, and then the pitching is talented, but we just haven't quite seen it yet. Like that's a combination that intrigues me because I'm pretty inclined to believe that the pitching is going to be pretty doggone good. And if you can bank on the position player group being solid, like I'm, I'm going to take that because my concerns with Georgia in the past have been about that position player group. And it just doesn't seem like that's as much of a concern this time around. Yeah. It's a pitching and defense team still, um, but they're very old. They, uh, they have a ton of experience in the lineup it was not a good lineup le- last year like let's let's just be honest with ourselves here in an sec that just like produced a lot of really good offenses georgia was not one of them uh they were totally fine but it, it wasn't it wasn't anything explosive they're gonna have to be a little better offensively this year to you know make that leap and get back to to hosting a regional but you're talking about a team that beat vanderbilt you know the in it in a series uh, you're talking about a team that thought they were in the NCAA tournament when they left the sec tournament, they wound up just missing. Um, this is not a team that, that was bad last year by any stretch. And it was a team that was pretty darn young last year. Um, they, they dealt with a lot of injuries. Jonathan Cannon missed, uh, missed time at the start of the year. Ryan Webb missed time at the start of the year. Uh, various other pitchers were, were in and out. And that forced some of some younger players like Liam Sullivan, like Jaden Woods to, to take on more innings uh, than maybe was expected as freshmen. And they pitched well, uh, but most importantly, they got, they got good experience that they can now, you know, take into this year and, and be even better. And so I, I'm excited about this team uh, really from, from the time that the draft happened and Cannon didn't go and Dylan Ross, who was the top junior college recruit, that made it to campus and, and he didn't get drafted. Those were both 
you know, Cannon was viewed as a, you know, second, third, fourth round pick somewhere in there. And Dylan Ross was viewed third, fourth, fifth round, probably um, maybe four or five, a little more than third. But anyway, uh, once those two guys were coming to Athens this year, there was there was a lot to like about this team. And uh, so I, I'll be very interested to see how they uh, how they go out and, and compete uh, against a, a challenging schedule, obviously playing in the SEC, but they get Georgia Tech on a weekend again. And uh, there's they're, they're going to be challenged um, you know, throughout the season. And uh, I'll, I'll be I'll be excited to see how how that one shakes out. I will say I'm interested in Oregon State. I feel like we've talked enough about the Beavers, though, throughout the offseason. I've been interested in Oregon State uh, really, again, since the draft ended and, and you saw what they had coming back. Uh, but I'm I'm really, really interested in what Oregon State has this year. Uh, but that's a, let, let's talk about Irvine a little bit, Joe. You see Irvine last year won the Big West just the second time in program history. Won it, uh, I don't want to say easily, but they were they were the clear-cut best team in the Big West. They went out, they won it, and they're running it back in large part this year. There are some key guys that, that moved on uh, from last year's team, Mike Peabody, um, you know, from the lineup, Trenton Denholm uh, from the rotation, but they've got a lot of this group back. Nathan Church was outstanding last year. Um, with Peabody gone, it'll really be on him to kind of carry this offense, but I think he's ready to do it. Um, they have, you know, really two really good starters, two really good relievers enough, you know, th- that should provide them with enough that they can figure out the pieces around them and not playing four game weekend series. Like they did last year in the big West, not doing that this year should help them with some of their depth issues. Maybe they can use their, their top relievers a little more often and, uh, you know, use them to, to really shorten the game, uh, it's a team that that's going to defend really well. They've got one of the best defensive shortstops in the country. Uh, and I, I, I really feel like they can go out and they can win another big West title. And in a year when the big West looks to be pretty good, um, you know, we like this team. We like long beach state. You see Santa Barbara made the tournament last year. They again, look to be pretty good. Cal Poly has one of the best players in the country in Brooks Lee uh, Jordan Sprinkle at UCSB also is a potential first round pick. I mean, there's a lot happening in the Big West, and I, I think that the Anteaters can, um, you know, use that to maybe vault even further and maybe get into that hosting conversation, which would be huge for them, uh, both on a program level but also on a team level, just trying to advance in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, it's that, that's that's where the Big West being improved this year, uh, I think, can really play a role there because maybe it means a few more losses you know, in, in, the, in the aggregate, but it, it might mean improved computer numbers. It might mean a team that's a little more battle-tested and that could set them up to for a deeper postseason run and, and hosting, which would be obviously crucial for, for a team like that. So, um, yeah, I think that it's a big thing with the Big West going from, from four games to three games. I think there's another team in this top 25 that, that we probably won't get deep in, so I'll just mention it here. Is like Old Dominion is another team where they have some questions. Old Dominion, we have a 24. Um, we basically mixed up the and, conference USA teams in a bag and picked one out. I mean, <laughs> well, so let, let's let's actually have a quick old Dominion discussion here because if you read earlier editions of the top twenty-five in the off season, you saw Charlotte as as the conference USA team represented. 
Uh, Joe, you kind of talked me out of Charlotte. Uh, they're the top four teams in that league, Southern Miss, La Tech, Charlotte, and ODU. Those are the four teams that made the tournament last year. We think they're going to be the top four again. A case can be made for any of them in the top 25, but Joe, you made the case for ODU. So explain why the Monarchs are here and you gave the 49ers the boot. Yeah, it's really less to me, less to, you know, maybe it's on us for, for having ranked Charlotte and not looking, looked more critically at. Yes. I may have gone too overzealous about Charlotte returning to awesome bats that that is, and not looking at some of the other stuff that is totally fair assessment of what may have happened. Yeah. I mean, and that wasn't even meaning to point the finger at you necessarily. It's just like, I think, you know, I think we looked at an older team like that old Dominion was, and, and we did this ranking after the draft. So a lot of these guys didn't get drafted, but I think there was at least on my part, kind of an assumption that, well, some of these guys are probably going to sign undrafted deals. And some of these guys will probably just matriculate out. Um, Charlotte had less of that. They, the two hitters are referring to Austin Knight and David McCabe are back. Um, but then a funny thing happened. Old Dominion brings back everybody except Kyle Battle in that lineup. And that Who was lineup, an All-American last year, it should be said. But... Sure, 100%. Um, but he wasn't – he was their best bat last year, but he was not leaps and bounds their best bat last year. They had a lot of guys who put up pretty similar numbers. And so the lineup is old. Uh, the lineup also has, like, legitimate – this is not a – some of these guys are – and I don't mean this as pejorative, but some of these guys are just really good – physical college hitters, but they've also got Carter Trice, a Team USA guy, a legit prospect in 2023. Kenny Laveri, a really exciting athlete who's a, less of a prospect than Trice, but still a legitimate prospect for 2023. Um, you know, Chris Dingler is a, a pretty exciting athlete who missed a lot of time last year. He was actually not in the lineup last year, and now he's back. So it's like getting an extra starter back in their lineup. So um, I think that's just lineups can be really, really good. And the point I was starting to make is that they do have questions on the mound. They lost three of the four guys who started most of their games last year in the four game weekends. But the fact that they are going back to three game weekends now allows them to spread innings out uh, more among their top arms instead of being quite so thin. They just have to cover fewer innings every weekend. And I think that's going to be really, really helpful for old dominion. Uh, The lineup will be really good. I think the the pitching just needs to be just kind of okay. And, And they do have, you know, we speak about real dudes. They do have in the bullpen, a Jason Hartline, who had a microscopic ER late A last year, and it's kind of your your kind of standard crafty closer type. But they also have Noah Dean, who's a fireballing left-hander, who is probably the best prospect on the team. Um, sometimes has issues with command, but but the stuff is excellent. Um, so it, it's a team that's just really loaded. That's really no other way to put it. And so with Charlotte, it was less about what Charlotte didn't do, and more that we kind of found ourselves impressed with ODU late in this process. But the thing about Charlotte is that. Um, you know, they lost a lot on the mound. And yes, they do benefit in the same way that Old Dominion does in terms of playing fewer games on the weekends. But with the way they replace those, uh, what they'll end up with on the mound and who they're replacing on the mound, I think is a bigger gulf than what Old Dominion is doing. Because Charlotte did have guys on the mound who I think were um, a little more... Um, could be a little more dominant at times, had a little more stuff than some of the guys Old Dominion was running out there. And so to lose that and what they're replacing with, I think is a, is a bigger jump than what Old Dominion has. They had a staff of guys who just kind of threw strikes in, in eight innings. And, and I, don't, I don't mean to be to be rude about that. I mean, it's just kind of the reality of it. Um, so I, I like their ability more to replace that than, than what Charlotte is replacing on the mound. And it should be said with, with Charlotte, they do lose 
uh, Gino Groover in the lineup and Dom Palali, but they both transferred and followed assistant coach Bo Robinson to NC State. Um, they are also leaning pretty hard on transfers, both on the mound, obviously, and the lineup. And you just never know exactly how that's going to going to work in the end. So um, I think Charlotte's still a good team. We still have them in the field of 64. And I joked about putting the four Conference USA teams in a bag and shaking them up and picking one. We obviously didn't do that. I don't mean that seriously, but Teddy is correct in that we could have ranked any one of Old Dominion, Charlotte, uh, Southern Miss, or Louisiana Tech, and I don't think anybody would have had a reasonable gripe about any of the four. Well, they might have, but like that's again, it, it, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have your gripe would be why wasn't Southern Miss ranked, not why did you rank Southern Miss, and, and I think that would have been true for for all of them, and um, I, I look for that to be an exciting race again this season in Conference USA. Um, and I mean, maybe, maybe we should have ranked all four of them, you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe there'll be room for them uh, in, in the top 25 in the weeks to come. That is the fun thing about this. Uh, this thing constantly is changing. Um, before we get out of here, Joe, I wanted to touch on one more team uh, that, you know, it's a, it's a little tricky to, to get our, our arms wrapped around them. Uh, and that's Texas Tech. We have them ranked 23. I think a lot of people are going to look at that and say, wow, what happened to the Red Raiders this year? And also, don't they still have J.C. Young? And that is true. They still do have J.C. Young. Um, and he is still an All-American and a Player of the Year candidate and all the rest of that. But, Joe, I look at Texas Tech, and outside of J.C. Young, I see a lot of, oh, boy, I, I, just, I just don't know. They're... These guys, I assume, are good players. Uh, I know some of them to be good players, but there is there is just a lot of unknown in Lubbock in a way that we haven't really seen recently. And it's quite possible that Tim Tadlock and the Red Raiders are going to make us look like fools for ranking them so low this year. Uh, but I also do think that they have some, some serious questions to answer uh, in the first few weeks of the season. Just how is the lineup going to shake out around Young? Uh, you know, and, and what does the pitching staff look like? They do get Brandon Birdsell back coming off of injury, but it's not an easy injury to come back from, uh, you know, so I, they're just, to me, both sides of the ball. I'll be very interested to see what Texas tech puts together. I am with you. Um, you know, and had we ranked Texas tech in the top, you know, I think we could have reasonably still ranked them, you know, what, like 15, 16 or something like that. But if we'd have pushed for them in the top 10 or something, like, I think that would just be ranking based on the, the name on the front of the jersey. And I think the name on the front of the jersey does matter some in that. I think there is a chance that they make us look silly because this is a program that year after year tends to do a pretty good job of replacing the guys it loses. It always loses guys, and they just kind of churn through them. What I will say, though, is that outside of Jace Young, like the last couple of years have, you know, they've had Cal. Conley and, and Dylan Noisy, they were productive players. Those were kind of multi-year players that were matriculating to the program, though. Um, and I'm th- I'm just not sure who's coming up behind Jace Young right now that is kind of the next guy who can be that kind of star. Now, it remains to be seen, but this is where I think you start to see something like the fact that Texas Tech had its recruiting class pillaged by the draft, and that happens to a lot of programs. They're not alone on that. But that is where I think you can see that expressed is – maybe 
maybe this year's team kind of cobbles it together and figures it out, but how does that affect the 2023 team? And I have confidence that they will continue to recruit and work hard in recruiting and, and pull in JUCO guys if they need to do it to fill in gaps and, and all of that stuff. But I do look at this, this lineup and it just doesn't look like a Texas Tech lineup we've seen. And, and it, it should be said that they probably have some younger players here that we just don't know about that are, that are going to debut and are going to be good right off the bat. And, and notice Teddy and I both doing like a lot of caveats because I think we're both kind of scared to put Texas Tech this far <laughs> down in the top 25. We're being real honest with ourselves. We are pretty reticent about it, but we both have the same reaction where we look at this lineup and we go, okay, J.C. Young and okay, Cole Stillwell had a nice year last year, but there's a group of veterans here and Parker Kelly, Kurt Wilson, uh, Ty Coleman, who's transferring from A&M to Texas Tech, Easton Morrell, Cody Masters. Those are guys who have been in the program. And to this point, we're not talking been in the program, like been in the program three years, you know, masters, Morrell, Wilson, Parker Kelly, those are fifth year seniors. Ty Coleman is a fourth year junior coming from A&M on some level. If those guys were going to be breakout stars in, in the big 12 or in Coleman's case in the sec, like you wonder if that would have already happened. Uh, you assume that would have already happened. And so are those guys ready to really hold those roles full time? And if, if they are, and if those guys end up being really productive players and some of them win all conference honors. Like it is a player development success to be, uh, to really be rooted for because that would be uh, fantastic for those players. And it would show that yes, once again, Texas tech just reloaded instead of having to rebuild, but I'm a little dubious of, of what that lineup looks like, especially when they're projecting to start some guys that we've just seen in this program. And we've seen to guys that have had their had their moments here and there but but guys who have not been able to over the course of a full season um, hold down full-time roles and, and be the types of stars that Texas Tech needs to have the type of offense that it's had in the past. Tech um, has a lot of good young players there there's a lot to be said for that uh, now they just got to go and they they got to do it um, but yeah they're they're looking at they're looking at a team that just looks a lot different than it did the last couple of years when tech was, was really, really, really good. Um, JC on alone is going to win them some games this year and he's going to be a difference maker. Uh, and I have no doubt that the tech is going to be a good team, that they're going to be a regional team, but for this team to go out and compete with Texas to go out and win the big 12, uh, they're going to need some some young players to step up. And that's true of, you know, look, we rank Texas number one. We don't have another Big 12 team in the rankings until you get to Oklahoma State in the teens. Um, so obviously we, we do think Texas is the class of this conference. But the way the Big 12 works, it's usually a pretty tight race to the end. Some of that's because they only play, you know, 24 games because it's a smaller league. But um somebody's going to challenge them maybe it'll be the red raiders maybe it'll be the pokes maybe it'll be baylor or tcu but um if it's going to be texas tech there are going to be some younger players or you know again maybe some of these these older players that maybe kurt wilson as a full-time position player like breaks out you know whatever it is they're going to have to have some guys really take steps forward uh around jc on to to get that team uh, you know, into Big 12 title contention. All right, that's going to do it for us today. We, uh, like I said, we, we went pretty deep on some of these teams. 
we still have plenty of time before the season starts uh, over these next few weeks to, to go deep on others. Uh, you can read everything over at baseballamerica.com. Again, the, the team by team capsules being released five a day uh, for the entirety of this week, starting with the top five uh, over at baseballamerica.com. There's plenty more college preview content to come both in the magazine and on the website. So make sure you are, you are checking uh, online at baseballamerica.com, following us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. Be subscribed to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure you're subscribed as we ramp up into the preseason. Uh, at some point here, we're going to start going twice a week. Not this week, but some point we'll we'll go to that and uh, get you more uh, preview content as as we get closer to opening day, which is February 18. This is just the start. It, it was a fun one. It's always fun to talk about the preseason top 25, as I said at the top. So thank you all for joining us. Thank you to Rapsodo for sponsoring uh, this edition and every edition of the Baseball America College podcast for Joe. I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time.